This is Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Gregory Rensmeg, fresh off a mountain hunt in uh, northern British Columbia. Welcome back, brother. Hey, Stelter. How's it going, buddy? I, uh, I, I wouldn't go with uh, fresh, but I am newly out of the bush. <laughs> it's definitely, <laughs> de- definitely not a fresh smelling person for a bit there. Yeah, fair, fair. So uh, how are the uh, northern British Columbia mountains? How did they treat you? They were uh, a little rough for a few days there. We, we got all sorts of weather. We were up in the Alpine, so we were getting snow, lots of wind. We thought we were losing our tent the first couple of days. Some interesting nights with the pegs pulling out, and you know, if we have a a TP tent with a stove, and the they got was getting so windy, the stove pipe actually came out. But you know, we we weren't burning at night when we were going to bed, just because it was calling for a lot of wind, and the I guess the pipe was even spinning, so it started shredding a hole in the Teflon for the the stove port. And, uh, yeah, it was just made, made some interesting times, you know, a lot of half days glassing where you're sitting on the mountain and you're trying to glass and you see a bunch of animals and the, the sleets piercing your eyes behind your binoculars and you're, you're trying to hide behind a rock and it's just not panning out the way you, you hoped. Seen a lot of animals, nothing legal, unfortunately, but we did see a lot of, a lot of caribou, a lot of sheep. So it was, uh, it was a good, it was a good trip. Sounds like uh, the lamb recruitment's pretty strong. You were sending pictures of lots of lots of lambs when you got out. That was pretty cool to see that. Yeah, it was neat. Um, every oh, it, was, it was weird though. Like the I've been there before, and we were seeing big groups of sheep. This time it was little pockets of sheep, but every pocket had it was always used and lambs. There was never uh, used without lambs. There was at least a one-to-one ratio. The one, the one group that stuck up on me while I was eating lunch, they came within about thirty yards. Which I sent sent my uh, sheep selfie to you. That uh, it's an old wily ewe that I've actually got some close-ups of her horns. I want to send that off and see if I get a few opinions on how old they think she is because she was there looking old years ago when I was in there. So. But she had uh, two last year's lambs with her and one from this year. So, and she was keeping them healthy, keeping them in line. I, know I sent you the video of your of her head button, one of them too. <laughs> but yeah, what she's... a cool trip, man! That's awesome. Yeah, it was good. It was good. You know, I wouldn't wouldn't trade those days for anything. Those mountain mountain days, whether you're successful on the harvest or not, is a different story. But I don't know. I've never had a hunt where I've said I wasn't successful. I might not have shot anything, but it's always a success when you're out there. Awesome. So you've moved up to the, uh, to the center of the world there to, to PG. Um, what is the rest of your fall look like? Are you going to get out for mule deer? Do you, is there any GOS, uh, moose tags? What, what does it look like for you now? Uh, there is some general open stuff to, to focus on. Um, one of my main things we're going to be looking at is my daughter has a private land elk tag for locally, Wow. And, she, and, you know, she's, she's got some difficulties. So she, you know, she's got cerebral palsy caused by a stroke from when she was little. So we, we're, we're just digging in and trying to find some local landowners to let us go, go and hunt. Um, you know, we all, people are always bashing the people looking, 
that are looking for private land after it's like well we were looking to buy private land and then didn't didn't end up happening we ended up on a smaller smaller acreage just outside of where we could shoot so yeah i don't know if, we, if the first place we wanted went through we would have been uh, hunting elk on our own property but now we got to find somebody else and set up the the bog pods with the daughter and the gun clamp and the vice and get her in a stand or something and hopefully capitalize on a private land elk tag with her and something like that is it any elk is it a bull how does it what do you six point what do you need to be for that hers is a cow hers okay yeah right on yeah that's awesome man well yeah that's uh that's really cool i'm looking forward to hearing how that pans out and then is there what's the deer hunting up like there is it not bad for mule deer whitetail what do you guys have yeah there's there's a little bit everything up here the the population seem pretty good. There are some people starting to drop some decent bucks around town that I've seen. You know, that, um, but we got the mecca of deer hunting, kind of the Hudson Hope Chetwind areas that are only a couple hours away now. So it kind of opened some doors moving up here. Before, if we were going to chase our mountain mule deer, it was you know four or five hour drive before we even start hiking. So it's now it's a yeah. couple hour drive and you know, short hikes and hopefully make it a little easier with the kids and make make some things happen for them. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, so on this episode, we 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 recorded this while you're away. We um, we knew we did, needed to do one year, when you're in the bush. So I sat down with Kevin Hurley. Kevin's the uh, vice president for the Wild Sheep Foundation, and uh, he is a the godfather of sheep conservation in the modern realm. He's just so dedicated to... The conservation does a ton of work. He's he's got a career of it. He talks about that on the podcast. Um, I kind of started hitting Kevin up on you know what our wild sheep numbers look like. What do they look like from like historically, like from you know a century ago to the sixties to the nineties to today? And uh, it was it's a really cool listen. It was, so we spent half the podcast just talking about sheep numbers, historical and modern day, which was a lot of fun for me. I. I always like to do that little travel down history lane, and I kind of know the ebbs and flows. I know the highs and lows, but you always learn something new when you get a guy like Kevin on the podcast. So really cool there. And then what we really focused on, Greg, and you know all about this, is the grant and aid program through the Wild Sheep Foundation. And you know they, they've spent a ton of money here in British Columbia, all across North America, but uh, BC has been a huge recipient of their benefits and the great work that they do. And they've been a great partner for the society, and we're bloody lucky to have them in our corner oh yeah i always refer to them as big brother and man they support us and they support conservation in bc and they just they throw money at sheep in bc and it's incredible to be to witness that firsthand and to you know to to see what they do for us and you know no better person to spread that message than mr hurley himself if you ever get a chance just to sit with that guy at a table over a drink or two he will teach you everything. You got a question about sheep anywhere in North America, he'll give you an answer. He'll tell you what's going on, if there's anything going on, what we should be doing, and he'll flat out tell you to get off your ass and do something too. He, he's just he's a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. No, a real pleasure to talk to Kevin. Um, and on that note, if uh, if you haven't been to Sheep Week, um, this is kind of my pitch. Um, you got to get down to Sheep Week, Greg. Obviously, you've been there. And, um, it's just one hell of a party. Uh, they say, come, what do they say? Come for the sheep, stay for the party. And, uh, 
that couldn't be more true. And, and the cool thing is, is uh, I was just down in, in Bozeman. I had a uh, board of directors meeting there this past week, and um, we're just going through numbers. And last year, uh, $7 million was directed uh, towards wild sheep conservation by the Wild Sheep Foundation. Of course, that's across all jurisdictions, all across North America, and in some cases beyond that. Um, but $7 million and um, over $3 million um not including the permit stuff. So some really big numbers for, for conservation, a great organization, one that I believe strongly in. If you're not a member, I would suggest you consider joining um, and certainly uh, come down to Sheep Week because uh, I, I know I'm going to be there. Greg, what's your plan? Are you Have you figured out if you're going to be down this, this year or what? Oh, if you'll have me, Mr. Stelter, I will be there in that booth hustling hard for the Wild Sheep Society BC. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, it's a great, you know, I, you've get, you guys have heard it here before, uh, come to sheep week, check it out. It just really gets you immersed in it. And you know, you're the big nights, the Saturday night, and there's close to 2000 people all there and everyone's just on the same page We're we're a big wild sheep family and everyone's just so focused on, on the great stuff. And it's such a great time. So yeah, there, there's the pitch. Um, it's, it's been done and, uh, registration's now open so you can, you can get signed up for sheep week and, uh, uh, there's what do they give away like 40 sheep hunts that that weekend? I'm kidding, obviously exaggerating, but I'm not exaggerating when it's roughly 12. I think that there's a sheep hunt at the Life Member Breakfast, the Lapamosa Desert Sheep Hunt, um, at the Less Than One Club on the Friday night. I think we give six or seven sheep hunts away there, um, or six or seven hunts anyway. Three for sheep hunts, pure sheep hunts. Um, there's just so many opportunities to to get a sheep hunt to get involved, and for those that uh, are keen on hunting sheep, um, there's some uh, actually, right now they got a twenty-five thousand dollar floor credit, so you can p- apply that to your sheep hunt, which would be uh, huge. Use that with one of the vendors there at Sheep Week and get yourself a doll sheep hunt or something like that. So, pretty cool opportunity, man. Yeah, no that that twenty-five thousand dollar floor credit you just mentioned, I was blown away when I seen that because you know when you're down there, I think it's like the big one before was ten thousand that you can put on the floor, and jumping that up to twenty-five thousand, it's like whoo. You can do a lot of things with twenty five grand down there in that room. Yeah, and you know, there's no real restriction on it. You just need to spend it uh, at Sheep Week, and then there are some restrictions on it, of course. But yeah, you can buy sheep hunt with it. You can spend it on gear. You can, and the cool thing is at the expo there, they've got everything from soup to nuts around mountain hunting, right? So, um, if you're going down there and looking for honey or for doilies, you're not going to find it. But if you want something to do with the mountains, you're going to be, uh, you won't be disappointed. They put on a hell of a hell of a show. So. Um, yeah, so enough about that on, on the home front here back in BC, we got two super cool raffles. We're going to draw those about a month from now. Um, I'm going to be here in Victoria, November 4th, and we're going to draw two lucky winners. We're going to draw one for our Danny Strong, our platinum sheep hunter package, $32,000 in prizes, uh, a Nexus Gunworks rifle. Yes. Thank you very much. A Gunworks and, and a kick-ass package of everything you wanted. Everything's premium. So, you know, if you're thinking about buying some sheep gear, buy a ticket, you win that, you've got it all. Guns, boots, um, tents, backpacks, the list is long, very long. You got everything you need for the mountains there. You got from your gun to literally your fork and spoon to head out there. Like you've got, that package is incredible and it's just it's a powerful cause that uh, I think every time any one of us talk about it, it uh, pulls at the heartstrings pretty good. 
the the Danny Strong rifle or raffle. Sorry. Yeah. So that's uh, and and really for anyone that doesn't know, we're fundraising for a Monarch membership for uh, Danny Cabana and uh, Dennis and Teresa, one of our our life slash Monarch members. Lost their daughter last winter, um, Danielle, and uh, this is to memorialize her. So what happens is the money from this raffle will go to buy her a Monarch membership. But through our Monarch membership program, it's basically a donation program, and they get to you get to direct it on on initiatives to support. So it'll go back to Wild Sheep Conservation here in BC, and it will memorialize Danny's name on our Monarch membership list for eternity. So that's the vision on that. And then our second raffle is the Jurassic Rifle Raffle. Okay, the cool takeaway on this one is this is the first Seiko 90 adventure that is offered at Raffle in North America. It's a brand new rifle that came out from Sacco. It's topped with a Steiner Phantom 4 um, scope, I believe. Sorry, Predator 4 scope. Um, beautiful setup from Steiner and uh, $5,700 prize package. But the cool thing is, is you're getting your hands on a new piece of technology that really isn't out there. Uh, some of the, I guess, influencers and the industry people have them, but the Seiko... Sacco 90 Adventure is really hard to get your hands on, and you're going to be the first one to get your hands on it um, through this raffle. And we're going to draw on that in about a month's time on October 4th. So very cool. And then we got something happening in November as well. Some uh, Women Shaping Conservation, Women Hunt Partnership, the Bonds Beyond Film Night uh, for yeah $50 tickets. It's going to include an appetizer, door prizes, sign auction, and more. And that's happening down at the Sandman Signature Vancouver Airport Hotel, November 25th. That's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. The whole board should be there. Um, we're doing a board retreat that weekend. So we got a bunch of work that we're going to be doing there. But the entire board of directors will be there that evening. And uh, Rachel Attila is going to be our keynote on that one. Uh, Blaine Culkins, uh, he's a member of parliament for the Conservative Party out of Blackfolds, Lacombe. He's going to be there. He's going to say a few words. Um, of course, uh, Rebecca Peters, our chair of Women Shaping, is going to be there. She'll say a little bit. And uh, Renee Thornton, who's the Women Hunt chair, she's going to be there. And then we're going to do a podcast afterwards. So we've got a... Uh, We've got a, a, I guess, a what do they call them, a, a swap cast we're going to do with uh, Sheep Fever. So Gray Thornton's going to be in the house, so Gray and I and uh, the four ladies, two ladies, the four of us are going to be on the stage and we'll we'll do a, a live podcast. So it's going to be a freaking awesome night. And tickets, like you said, Greg, 50 bucks. We're going to give away tons of door prizes, all kinds of stuff. You can come eat, drink to your heart's delight. It's going to be awesome. Um, tickets are on our website, so just go to our homepage, wildsheepsociety.com, and there's a big uh, big link there to uh, Beyond Bonds, the film, and you can get signed up for it. So, And we only have limited seats, so it's not open. Uh, we expect that we'll sell out. So, Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And that, that film, you know, we've, we've seen the teasers floating around now, so everyone's getting hyped up to watch the full, full meal deal. Yeah, it's a great great uh, production for sure so really stoked about it so with that we're gonna go and watch listen to mr hurley episode i believe we're at 153 with kevin hurley vice president wild sheep foundation enjoy this episode is sponsored by our conservation partner yeti thank you sitka gear and yeti for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems well, Mr. Kevin Hurley, um, 
former defending Jurassic Classic champion <laughs> angler <laughs> and uh, vice president of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Welcome to the podcast. Great to see you, Kevin. Yeah, good to see you too, Carl. Looking good. You got the orange shirt on. You got uh, you're you're saying that's Ryan Brock's uh, t-shirt from his youth experience. Yeah, for the past dozen years or so, the Wild Sheep Foundation has had a, a youth education program, and Dr. Ryan Brock is an educator in Reno, Nevada, and he heads us up in his uh, spare time. And this is a shirt that he made up years ago. YWCE. It's not like YMCA. It's the Youth Wildlife Conservation Experience, and Ryan's done a great job in the last. Uh, 10 or 12 years, part-time. Well, a national award winner too, right? Didn't he get a President's Award for uh, for his youth programs? And it literally, he moves thousands of kids a year through WSF, through Sheep Week, doesn't he? You know, yeah, you're right. And he put together a, a summary in the 11 years. It's over 108 or 110,000 kids that have been impacted or influenced by this program. Part-time. Ryan's a full-time teacher, and he does this nights, weekends, and summer months. Wow, uh, absolutely inspiring! And you know, I, I some of the pictures from Sheep Show. There's some pretty good pictures, but I'll tell you, the youth stuff is some of the best stuff. The kids just look like they're having a blast. They are. You know, I think last January of 23, uh, Ryan had 40 some volunteers helping. So they have all kinds of stations. They teach kids uh, to do everything from tying flies to you know, how to uh, uh, detect animal tracks, identify individual animals, looking at the hides and skins of various animals. And so Ryan would make a great uh, speaker for a future podcast for you guys. Yeah, actually, it was a really good point. And in fact, we invited him up to our show this year. And he's unfortunately, he's uh, committed to Eastern. I think the week before he can't make it up. But uh you know, he's in demand, that fella. He's so good. And you know, the cool thing is about his programs, he builds them to to travel to like he'll send stuff up and get people set up so you don't necessarily need him there it's obviously much better with ryan there but i think you can get away without having him there too can't you you bet teachers all over the country and volunteers and educators have uh, tapped ryan for his materials and he's got trunks and kits that he'll send around the country for uh, you know educational efforts he's got study plans put together so He's a real resource for the youth education component of wild sheep management. Awesome. Well, we ended up in a rabbit hole already, Kevin. We haven't even got started. So, <laughs> um, but uh, it's all good stuff. So, um, okay, let's let's get back on track here. And uh, Kevin, I know for our listeners, you've been on the, the podcast two, three, four times now, quite a bit. Um, but for those that haven't heard of you, talk a little bit about who Kevin Hurley is, what your day job is, and how the hell you got there in the first place. <laughs> yeah, all three good question marks. Um, yeah, I've been a wildlife biologist for 47 years now, and I've been able to do wild sheep work for 43 of those 47 years. After I got my graduate uh, degree and training at the University of Wyoming, working on a big one sheep study between Cody, Wyoming, and Yellowstone National Park. I went to work for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department for almost 30 years. Did all kinds of uh, wildlife management from, you know, I always say from moose to mice and, you know, bears to bats. Um, real emphasis, real interest on ungulates with particular interest on mountain sheep and mountain goats. So the Wild Sheep Foundation, back then it was commonly referred to as FNAWS, the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep. They've relocated their headquarters from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, 
to Cody, Wyoming in September of 1982, so 41 years ago. And I was already in Cody starting my field work. And so I got the opportunity to help unload the boxes for the first office for the Sheep Foundation when they moved uh, to Cody, where they were headquartered for 34 years. Um, late in my game and fish career, I had the uh, absolute opportunity of a lifetime to chair a wild sheep working group for 21 Western provincial and state agencies on wild sheep under the auspices of what's called WAFWA, and the acronym stands for the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Um, it's a 100-plus-year-old quasi-governmental organization. Um, one of your BC folks, uh, Jen Salikas, is the second term uh, as chair or president of WAFWA. She's doing a great job. And it's all the directors and upper level administrators, commissioners that guide a lot of the fish and wildlife policy in the West. And so anyhow, I went on staff officially with the Wild Sheep Foundation um, 12 and a half years ago. And so I've, I'm currently the vice president for conservation, but I have been involved with FNAS, the Wild Sheep Foundation for 42, almost 43 years now. Awesome, Kevin. Um, why why wild sheep? Why why goats? Is it just always been something that's interested you, or did you get it involved because WSF just happened to be unloading their truck that day in your backyard, or what? Uh, what's sort of the draw to wild sheep and, and goats? You know, fair question. Um, I grew up. Uh, my dad took different jobs, and so we bounced around as a family. I spent a lot of my uh, what I call my Wonder Bread years um, in Colorado on the Front Range. Um, my family was not really into the outdoors. My dad was not a hunter at all. And so it was by the time I was mid twenties, I was working for the U S forest service in Northern Idaho at a remote duty ranger station with, uh, 50 or 60 other seasonals. And I just fell in with some guys that love the outdoors and, you know, I hiked with them. We'd go fishing had a buddy from Nebraska. He was several years, is several years younger than me. He taught me how to shoot a gun and, and how to hunt because I'd never handled either. And he said, you know, you can do this. So anyway, long story short, um, in my mid twenties, I sort of discovered really what I wanted to do. And so it's been, uh, well, 40 plus years <laughs> that I've been focused on, on this and wild sheep in particular, just fascinating, you know, to me, they go all the way from tip top of Alaska and the Yukon and Northwest Territories all the way down into Mexico. So they have an incredible geographic range, everything from you know, sheep in Death Valley, California, below sea level to sheep up in the you know high Sierras at 14,000 feet and, and clear up into Alaska at 18,000 feet. So amazing animals, the country they live in, um, just fascinating. And the, the thing that keeps me motivated after almost mm, 43 years of doing sheep work is I learn something about them every day. I cannot wait till tomorrow so I can learn something else about wild sheep and mountain goat and their, their management and their conservation. Well, we're darn lucky to have you, Kevin. And, um, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit from you on how the face of wild sheep has changed, you know, kind of the status. I know, you know, we've seen some numbers trend over the years. So you've been involved for those 43 years. 
how's the state of wild sheep in the Western North America changed in, in the time you've been involved? Well, I'd actually go back a little bit further. And so it was a best guess estimate by an early naturalist named Ernest Thompson Seton. In 1928, he published a series of books about the lives of game animals. And he had his estimate, and it was totally seat of the pants. There's no way that a guy could do systematic surveys or inventories, but Seton estimated that prior to European settlement in the West, there were maybe one and a half to two million bighorn sheep. And that was based totally on his, you know, opinion. There's no way data was collected on that. There are contemporary folks that are analyzing fine scale habitat selection, looking at, you know, how wild sheep utilize the land. And, you know, some of them say there couldn't have been more than 500,000. Well, even if it was off by a factor of three or four, say 500,000 was the right number. And that's anybody's guesstimate as well. We got really low by the 1950s. Um, in the Western US, another uh, scientist, a uh, little more rigorous in his approach by the name of Helmut Buchner, he published a monograph in 1960 called Bighorn Sheep of the United States. And it was, and I, and I still refer to that. I have it right on my desk. And that is as dog-eared as an old book can get. But incredible records. Uh, and Buchner, he came up with an estimate by the late, or say the 1950s, that there were fewer than 17,000 bighorns left in the Western U.S. And that was exclusive of Canada and Mexico. But if you ballpark and wing an estimate there, Maybe there was as few as 25,000 bighorn left by that time. And so whatever the starting number is, whether it was one and a half to two million or half a million, it was a dramatic decrease down to a fraction. Stone sheep and doll sheep up north, collectively, we call them thin horn sheep. The assumption was always, well, they're still fine because, you know, their habitats are largely unperturbed. Um, that's really not the case. There's a great map that Charles Sheldon put together in a, 1911 that showed the distribution of doll sheep and stone sheep up north. And it's incredibly accurate compared to now. And so they had the distribution right. Of course, they didn't have the absolute numbers of the population estimates that are here now. But suffice it to say that wild sheep in North America have gone from whatever their pre-European disturbance was, pretty high level, to now struggling in many places. In fact, there were several Western states, Texas, Washington, Nebraska, the Dakotas, where bighorn sheep were eliminated, extirpated. They did not exist anymore. So if you look at Buchner's map from 1960, it shows a bunch of states barren vacant of any wild sheep. And then through the last, I'll say, 60 years of conservation, um, working with agencies, committed volunteers, um, landowners in some cases, uh, federal land management agencies, the state and provincial and tribal fish and wildlife agencies, there have been a lot of 
wild sheep reintroduced onto the landscape. Not so much dolls and stones up north, but in bighorn world, we've put together some figures that showed since uh, 1922, I believe, was the first documented record of a sheep transplant. And so 100 years, um, there have been over mm, 22,000 sheep moved in over 1,500 separate transplant actions. So that's a big part of what wild sheep conservation has been to try and get them back on the landscape. And, and so when the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep was founded nearly 50 years ago, our mantra or, or motto was putting more sheep on the mountain. That's what we were there for. It, that has evolved through time to say our current mission is putting and keeping wild sheep on the mountain. And that's a whole nother topic I'm sure we'll get into. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about this extirpation? Uh, so, for example, you talked about Texas, Nebraska. Why why were they extirpated? Obviously, a variety of reasons, but what were the kind of the main culprits? And, um, you know, and we've seen some significant declines, too. So maybe talk holistically and then maybe some of these areas. Is there some, you know, was it uh, was there some other things that caused the die off? You know, there's probably three or four main reasons that have been cited in the literature through time. And, you know, as just think about the exploration and settlement and development of the American West, say in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when railroads started coming through and wagon trains, etc. Um, where wild sheep lived, they were pretty accessible. Think back to Lewis and Clark, you know, over 200 years ago when they came through, there were bighorn sheep in a lot of places. Well, they're darn good eating. And so if you've got a camp full of uh, hungry railroad workers or, you know, a wagon train of folks or, a, you know, some kind of a mountain man expedition or a scientific, you know, uh, investigation with a crew of 30 or 40 men and horses, it was a big operation and it took a lot to feed them. And so to me, there's not a whole lot better than fresh wild sheep meat for the old barbecue grill. And so, you know, unregulated hunting was certainly an issue in the demise of wild sheep numbers. That's, you know, that's been largely controlled, not everywhere, but largely controlled through what I call modern day wildlife management. Um, there was a forage competition or a forage allocation issue with, again, the settlement of the West with a lot of livestock that came in that did not used to, you know, feed on the same grass. And, and wild sheep are primarily grazers, not browsers so much. They'll, I think, given a chance and given a choice, they'll take a blade of grass over a, a shrub twig. It's, you know, maybe in the wintertime it might be a little different, but they're primarily a grazer. So they had a lot more mouths on the landscape competing for that forage base that certainly had to have a negative effect on forage availability for wild sheep. Third was, uh, you know, disease pathogens that were brought with uh, folks as they pioneered and settled the West. And it certainly wasn't intentional. Um, nobody's claiming that it was. But, you know, when I think about analogies, I think about what pathogens and what diseases did our forefathers bring to the West? Smallpox, cholera, 
you know, chicken pox, things like that, that Native Americans had no built-in or natural immunity or resistance to those pathogens. And look at the, you know, how many uh, tribes and Native American populations were devastated by those introduced pathogens and diseases from our European predecessors. Well, their livestock also bring cooties with them, you know, and, and so respiratory bacteria is probably one of the biggest challenges that wild sheep have. You know, to me, it's incredible where they live, as tough as they are, but they're fairly wimpy from a respiratory standpoint. If you, you know, look sideways at them and sneeze, maybe they'll catch something and, and not do too well or keel over. And so a particular note is these respiratory bacteria that are latent in domestic sheep and goats. Um, and there is some impact on those animals, but they've had millennia and generation after generation, century after century of selective breeding and survival. But again, those pathogens were um, brought to these naive bighorns in the West or dolls and stones could be up North. And so I think there's a real challenge there. Um, but I think those are the three main causes of why wild sheep numbers uh, plummeted with the advent of, you know, European settlement. So we've seen this um, climb from, I think you mentioned 17,000 in the U.S. proper for bighorns, and um, we're at this low point in the 60s. Uh, wh where are we sitting now? What, what's your current population estimates for bighorns? Again, based on data and estimates from each of the 20-plus jurisdictions, states, provinces, and territories, if you aggregate all those together and you lump Rocky Mountain bighorn, California bighorn, and desert bighorn together, there's probably 90 to 100,000 bighorn sheep in the uh, U.S., Canada, in British Columbia and Alberta, and then in five states in Mexico, northern Mexico. Stones and dolls, the thin horns combined, you know, nobody really had a good estimate of those, but maybe 100 to 105,000 remaining now. So they're, they're pretty balanced where bighorns really got low and we've crawled and clawed back to a fraction of where we were, but still better than what we were 60 years ago. But now we're starting to see some losses in doll sheep range, <coughs> excuse me, that are, are quite concerning. Stone sheep, of course, in your home province of British Columbia, or virtually all the stone sheep on the planet live in BC. So there's a, a global responsibility and issue there. But um, we're a long ways from Seton's 1.5 to 2 million. Buchner, he didn't really have a population estimate on the high end, but he sure recorded the low end in the Dakotas, in Texas, in Wyoming, Arizona, Montana, wherever he, he worked all over the West. So it's a pretty dramatic, uh, you know, if you graph that out, it's a pretty dramatic decline and then a bit of a bump coming back over the last 50 or 60 years. But then there's a lot of what I call fine scale perturbations where some states or provinces are going up, some are not. Nevada, I look at that. Nevada's got it, probably more wild sheep in it than anywhere. And yet they've had setbacks because of dry conditions. They've lost two or 3,000 desert bighorn to this chronic drought, and now they're trying to come back from that. 
So, okay, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. So with uh, we look at Nevada, and Wild Sheep Foundation did a really cool grant and aid um, sort of uh, appeal uh, to the different chapter and affiliates a couple of years ago, and um, it was the fraternity of Desert Bighorn that kind of led that. Um, and we stepped in and we threw a bunch of money at it. Talk, talk about what happened there and, um, it, you know, is that something, are, are we, you know, we're playing God there is, you know, it's a bit of an ethical issue, right? So let's talk a little bit about that and how, you know, how important that is and, and, um, and how effective it was. Yeah. I mean, there's a longstanding argument about, you know, should there be man-made artificial water sources developed in desert environments? And it's not just desert bighorn that'll benefit everything from, again, butterflies and birds to small mammals to herps. And so uh, setting that aside for a minute, because that would take two days to argue that out, whether you should or shouldn't. But the fact is, a bunch of Western states and in northern Mexico, the states there, there have been water developments, guzzlers, uh, water catchments, water delivery systems built in the desert, whether it's the Mojave, the Chihuahuan, the upper Chihuahuan, Sonoran Desert. But um, those are documented to do great things for Desert Bighorn. And so the particular example you're talking about, the fraternity of the Desert Bighorn, which is one of our two dozen or more chapters and affiliates, and in fact, probably the oldest affiliate that exists. They, their past 50 years, 55 years, I think that they've been in existence, but they do an incredible job in Southern Nevada, which is the driest state in the union, um, with these uh, water developments. And you want to always catch rain if there's a freak, you know, occasional heavy snow or rainstorm out in the desert, you want to capture as much of that as you can. And so a lot of these guzzler sites have big collection aprons and they'll you know, intricate piping systems and plumbing systems that have evolved through time, but to try and catch that runoff and then make it available to not only Desert Bighorn, but other desert dwelling wildlife. So the project you're talking about two years ago, Nevada had an incredibly chronic drought. I, I remember hearing some of our Nevada colleagues talking about, you know, 320 days without rain. And so um, a lot of the water has to be brought in. And so whether it's accessible from a vehicle, a lot of it has to be ferried in with a helicopter. So you can imagine you're, you're a pilot, you know, the weight limits on any aircraft to bring in water, um, incredibly expensive, but it made a huge difference. And so the fraternity that does a bighorn reached out to all of the um, partner chapters and affiliates, plus the national organization, and I want to say in about 10 minutes, we might have raised $185,000 or $190,000 in pledges from all the different chapters and affiliates and individuals that said, we want to help Nevada get water to these sheep. And it's, it's obviously a um, Band-Aid temporary fix, but at the time it was a very acute need. And so that's what wild sheep conservationists do. They stepped up and made something happen. Um, and any idea how many sheep that saved? I, I know there was still some mortalities with that, but uh, it saved literally thousands of sheep in, in Nevada. It did. And so right during that time when water was so limited in Nevada, 
the number I keep hearing is they figure they lost two to 3,000 desert bighorn in that same two or three year window and how many were saved with these emergency water halls. It's, it's always kind of hard to say how many would have died otherwise, but um, made a dramatic difference and saved, certainly saved hundreds, if not thousands of desert bighorn. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so from what you've seen, Kevin, and, and in your experience, we talk about carrying capacity and, you know, loss of habitat. And then, you know, there's always the disease issue, but what, what could we have for sheep out there? We talk about a hundred thousand, ninety thousand bighorns. I think you mentioned roughly. What could we have? What do you think? You know, if we could solve some of these issues, the disease issue, um, you know, maybe did some predator management, whatever we need to do. What what number do you think is possible that we could see? Again, it's it's a little more sophisticated than a magic eight ball. Oh, excuse me. Um, sophisticated than a magic eight ball or a Ouija board, but a lot of modeling has shown that, you know, I'll use Nevada again as an example. They've got right now probably 10,000 plus wild sheep in Nevada. They would have been 12 to 13,000 absent this drought. The figures and, and talks I've heard, only a third of their historic range is currently occupied. So, do the quick math. Could there be 30,000 desert sheep or yeah, desert sheep and Rockies and California sheep in Nevada? Possibly, but obviously Nevada has uh, an abundance and a history in the domestic sheep industry. You, know, you think about the whole Basque culture and how big operations, you know, running bands and bands of domestic sheep in that basin and range country. Um, biologically, they could probably have 30,000, but given the reality, it's not going to happen. And that, that's really a, a difficult pill to swallow when you see the opportunity and the potential out there on the landscape. But, you know, you're basically kept from reaching that because of some other real world issues and factors. You know, and my crystal ball is no clearer than yours or anybody else's, but you know, it, it would not surprise me if we could have twice the number of sheep that we currently have in the West. Um, I think the habitat is out there. There's just some other things that need to be addressed as well. But that's that's totally a hip pocket guess. Cool. So you talked a little bit about, you know, reintroduction of sheep in these uh, traditional habitats, uh, Texas, Nebraska. Uh, we've seen a bunch of work done on the uh, transplant side of things in Mexico that's been very successful. I think there's been some nursery panning going on there that's helped as well. Um, is there some areas that are not traditional areas that we could see sheep on that? Uh, I know we got lots of spaces right now we can fill with sheep that are traditional areas, but is there some areas that maybe don't traditionally have sheep that we, we could look at putting sheep there that we could use habitat for that? Yeah. One area that comes to mind right away is um, along what's known as the Missouri breaks in North central Montana. And again, if you go back to Lewis and Clark's expeditions in 1804 to 1808, they saw a lot of bighorn sheep along the Missouri river and other tributaries there. And so there's been some really good work done in Montana modeling. What's the capability of the landscape. And again, uh, Land ownership has a, a 
influence on that. So a lot of places like Wyoming, we, we used to call it the checkerboard, where every alternating section of land, every square mile was you know, private, public, private, public, private, public. And that complicates management of any resource. And, uh, but I do think there are a number of places that have the potential to have a lot more wild sheep than they currently do, but some things need to get addressed. And it's not just uh, domestic sheep presence and, and risk of contact and chance of pathogen transfer. It might be habitat wise. You know, there's a lot of conifer succession. In, in my simple mind, bighorn sheep evolved out in open, high visibility habitats where they can look around and detect predators. You know, to me, whether it's an airborne predator like an eagle, a coyote trying to get a lamb, maybe a mountain lion that's wanting to jump on a on a ewe, they need visibility around them. You know, they have good hearing and good sense of smell, but I think their main predator detection is their eyesight. And what's their reaction when they get pushed or bumped? They go to the rocks. They go to escape cover. And so I think there are a lot of places that has the um, physical geography to have wild sheep in it, but then there's usually some other limiting factor um, that keeps them from being, you know, reintroduced there or augmented if it's a struggling population that's hanging on barely. Great. Um Let's just touch a little bit on disease and, and thinhorn sheep. Um, you know, we traditionally hear of these die-offs, and they're quite often associated with bighorns. Is there much of a history of, of thinhorn die-off or you know, at all for, for disease events that you're familiar with? Well, if you compartmentalize it by the four jurisdictions that – I'm sorry, my dog is barking in the other room. Let me shut this door. If you compartmentalize it to the four jurisdictions up north that have, you've got Alaska, the Yukon Territory, Northwest Territories, and British Columbia. And so uh, maybe do it that way if, if that's okay. Northwest Territories, I've never been there. It's kind of like heaven. I hope to get there one day. Um, I've been within three kilometers of the NWT border, but I've never been there. But to me, it just sounds like an amazing place, probably a you know, other than the bad fire they had this summer that resulted in the evacuation of Yellowknife. I mean, that's terrible for those folks. But um, estimates in NWT are probably in the mid-20,000 range, you know, and that's a wide-ranging guesstimate. But let's just say 25,000 for discussion purposes. And those sheep are pretty well distributed where they could be. You know, there hasn't really been a factor, you know, that's limited their distribution, whether it was mining or, you know, some other human activity. So I think NWT is sort of the benchmark. And if you were going to look at density of doll sheep, that would be a good baseline to start with, you know, relatively undisturbed habitat. You come over the border into the Yukon Territory, and the numbers I hear are 22,000 or so um, doll sheep there, again, well distributed north and south in the territory. Um, jump over to Alaska, 
you know, Alaska is struggling right now. Um, doll sheep there have really been in a nosedive. I remember not that long ago, they used to have enough um, doll sheep in, in Alaska that they were harvesting maybe 1,100 or more rams every year. And that's a combination of guided non-resident hunters or residents, um, not so much the indigenous harvest, but now this past fall, their harvest was down to a little over 400 rams. So down almost two thirds. And so Alaska is having a really tough time. And of course, the first thing people think of is predation. Oh, wolves or eagles or whatever, something must be eating those. But I think the research and monitoring is showing that, you know, the biggest contributing factor was poor lamb crops 10 or 12 years ago. And whatever reason those lamb crops were suppressed, of course, that manifests in eight, nine, 10 year old rams, it would be the bulk of the harvest and they're just simply not there. One of the real concerns in Alaska and as well as other places up north is you know, changing climates, changing weather patterns. You know, you think about that light, fluffy snow that normally on a south-facing slope would melt off or the wind would scour uh, and remove that snow cover. Now what seems to be going on are these repeated patterns of freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw. And so it's almost like a concrete sandwich, layer sandwich, where you get snow, it warms, Maybe it melts some, then it freezes again. And pretty soon you have a crust, almost a concrete barrier that they can't paw their way through to get down to the grasses that they need to survive on. The other thing that's kind of scary is I've heard presentations from Alaskan biologists that said they're documenting about a one meter per year upslope movement of the shrub line. So you think the top of the mountain isn't getting any bigger, but the ascending brush line is making the top of that mountain smaller because of, again, changing climate patterns. And I'm not pointing fingers and saying who's responsible for climate change, but the reality is climates and weather patterns are changing. So managers better get in front of and figure out what do we do in the face of these because they're probably going to continue. And so, Will doll sheep numbers bounce back in Alaska to what they were 20, 30, 40 years ago? Hard to say. We're all hopeful, but uh, no guarantees on that. So, you know, every, every thin horn population that I'm aware of has got some challenges, but fortunately they have not been challenged very widely with these respiratory pathogens introduced transmitted from domestic sheep and goats. There have been instances, but all the work that I'm aware of in the last, say, decade, so far stone sheep, knock on wood, no uh, respiratory pneumonia of, of a certain kind caused by a certain bacteria called mycoplasma ovidemonia. It's MOVI or MOV for short, but so far stone sheep seem to be doing okay on that end. Um, doll sheep, there's some real intensive monitoring going on. Hunters are playing a huge role in helping the agencies and the wildlife vets get samples from harvested animals. 
that they can run in a lab and see if there's exposure to these um, bacteria, these pathogens. And so it's uh, it's a it's an uphill slope that we got to keep climbing. Awesome. So on that note, Kevin, let's uh, transition now and let's talk a little bit about the great work that the Wild Sheep Foundation is doing. You guys do a ton of fantastic work all across North America for wild sheep and beyond our borders too. But let's talk about um, the grant need process now. I know that you guys just wrapped up an intensive uh, couple of months uh, of of addressing that and and talk about what the grant need process is and why it's so important for uh, wild sheep in in all jurisdictions. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, Kyle. Let me paint a little bit of a history picture, though. When the founders of the Wild Sheep Foundation got together 50 years ago, these were hunters that had had great experiences around the globe. And yet they had the foresight to recognize that wild sheep do not pay their own way. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have a wild sheep management program in jurisdiction X or Y or Z, you know, there are fixed costs. How much does a radio collar cost? How much does it cost for an hour of helicopter time? How much does it cost to gather and analyze these biological samples at a diagnostic lab. So those um, founders 50 years ago didn't have the benefit of what we know now, but they saw the need that sheep do not pay their own way from license revenue. So the foundation was formed. And then, of course, I said the network of chapters and affiliates that, that came after that. And so nine years ago, we did an analysis, and I think this really helps tell the story. We looked at all 20 jurisdictions that we could get information from, and we asked three simple questions. And being an ex-game and fish guy from Wyoming, you know, I knew we don't need to make this a real complicated questionnaire, but we said annually, what's your um, budget to do wild sheep conservation work? in your home state or province or territory. And then how much of that uh, management cost, let's just say it's a million dollars, just for example. If you have jurisdiction X that says, we spend a million dollars a year on bighorn sheep. We said, how much of that is covered from license revenue for issuing resident or non-resident bighorn sheep hunting licenses? And obviously, there's a a spectrum of answers. But what we found was across the board, when we combined all these jurisdictions together, roughly one quarter of the money needed to have wild sheep conservation and management programs within these agencies comes from license revenue, which leaves a huge gap. Three quarters of the funding has to come from somewhere else. And that's what the Wild Sheep Foundation, our network of chapters and affiliates, other conservation groups that are interested in wild sheep, we provide the money. You know, we are no longer, you know, I I used to be the guy in charge of transplants or captures and things like that. I've done a bunch of those, but we recognize the agencies are our partners. They're the proactive managers. What we try to do is help them as much as we can with necessary funding. So I'll give you a big 
uh, ballpark number since our inception, we've probably generated and directed over $150 million to wild sheep conservation in the last 45 years. We're actually 47 years. We're coming up on our 50 year anniversary in three years. But um, this most recent cycle, we went through uh, our July call for proposals and it's an open application. You don't have to be a member to apply for funding. But what we have tried the last two years is a more of a collaborative approach. And we said, since we have so many chapters and affiliates, two dozen or more that are closest to the issue, we said we really wanted to give emphasis to projects that are submitted by, through, or with our network of chapters and affiliates in close collaboration. And so we don't expect our chapters and affiliates to write these requests and submit them. The agency people are doing that. The university people are doing that. The researchers are doing that. But we want to make sure that it's a high priority project for, in your case, British Columbia, in somebody else's case in Arizona or Oregon or Montana. And so um, we've given great uh, credence to grant and aid funding requests that are well collaborated and in some cases span state or provincial boundaries. You know, we have a good project that's been postponed for a year right on the British Columbia Yukon territory border, looking at doll sheep in that car cross country. That's a great example of a collaborative project that got well supported. Um, and then for various reasons, it's been delayed, ho hopefully no more than a year. But this cycle, we wound up the month of July is our online application window, we received 30 requests for funding that totaled $3 million. So our budget is not that big. Um, and so our board after the, well, the month of July was the application window. The month of August was spent reviewing, prioritizing, vetting these proposals and funding requests. And then we made a joint recommendation, we being um, our conservation staff um, of two, and then we have what we call a professional resource advisory board, and that's a mix of half a dozen people who have equally long experience with wild sheep management, and we independently review those grant and aid funding requests, come together, and then we blend and merge and prioritize, and so we came to the Wild Sheep Foundation board in late August with a recommendation that uh, we knew what the budget was, but we also identified some projects that if we could reach, if we could generate some additional revenue, we'd like to fund. So long story short, our board took action on August 31 and approved what I'll say is 50% of what we got requested. We got 3 million in at request and we had 1.55 million in approved funding. We did have 16 or 18 projects that we said were really high priority. And those totaled about 1.9 million. And so the difference between our available budget, we had to reach. And so 
the Wild Sheep Foundation board really dug deep and came up with some additional funds. And uh, we were able to fund 13 projects to the tune of $1.55 million, which is the biggest amount that we've ever committed to in my history. At a, those projects, that's over a one-year period. That's kind of your, through your throughout your fiscal year. Hey, it's this isn't like multi-year approvals. This is happening in the next twelve months type thing. It is, and we don't typically fund long-term projects. Although we have been involved with long-term projects, they're subject to annual approval. You know, it's a, a lesson I learned long ago in the nonprofit world: you can never commit a future board to a funding obligation because we, like so many nonprofits, have to raise every penny we have. And so if we said, okay, board, we want to fund um, these projects for the next five or eight years, we can't guarantee that funding. So it is an annual um, application period. We always give preference to continuing projects that are you know, in year three, year four, year five versus new startups, but those have to perform. They have to produce results. They have to produce information that helps us determine, well, is that one that we should continue to fund you know, year by year, or do we pull back and try to fund something new and novel in a different direction? So um, it's a real uh, process of scrutiny. These projects are not you know, just because somebody's familiar with an area or hunted there once 20 years ago, these are good, sound, conservation-based wild sheep management projects, everything from transplants, disease surveillance, habitat treatments, water developments, you name it. There's a spectrum of projects, but geographically, they go from uh, the Yukon all the way down to the Mexico border. So um, is collaboration part of this, Kevin? Do you guys look at that when you're funding projects? Do you look, okay, um, are there other people with skin in the game or is it kind of uh, projects that you guys are earmarking or, or sort of, I guess, maybe what are some of the factors that you guys are looking at um, when you're making these decisions and recommendations? You know, I can't think back of too many projects that the Wild Sheep Foundation has said, we got this, we'll fund this 100%. We don't want anybody else's help. That's that's just foolish in this day and age. It takes a lot of collaboration, a lot of partners. And those partners could be, you know, individuals or businesses or organizations or foundations that aren't really involved day to day, but they support the concept of wild sheep conservation and on the ground management. And so, um, what we hope is that we can attract, if not an equal amount, then certainly a, a big percentage of what we committed to in partner funding. So collaboration is absolutely essential. And again, if we had two projects side by side and one of them we had to pay 100% of the tab for versus one that we could pay 50% of the tab and the expected outcomes might be similar, we're always going to favor the one that is cost shared with one or more willing conservation partners. Awesome. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about the work that you're doing here in British Columbia. So there's been a number of projects that the society has uh, worked with the foundation of, and you know we're we're really grateful for the work that you guys have done here in the province. Um, talk about some of the, uh, I guess the, the one that comes to mind for me is the legacy project of, of the Fraser River. T- touch a base on a little bit on that one, and and sort of the support you guys have given that, and why that's such a high priority project for the foundation. Happy to, and, and let me let me share with the listeners. There's really two main threads, if you will, of fundraising at our uh, annual sheep show in Reno, Nevada, every January, is Wyoming pioneered the concept back in 1980 of special governor's bighorn sheep licenses. In fact, I was a beneficiary. My graduate stipend at the University of Wyoming was partially paid for off some of the proceeds of the early Wyoming governor's sheep permits. Most of the western states and provinces and several tribes and First Nations have done the same thing where, you know, if you offer for auction, you know, a special permit and 90 or 95% of that money goes back into that program, that resource, um, it's a good way to generate some of the much needed funding. So we have permit proceeds that we return to each jurisdiction if we've, sell, uh, if we've sold or auctioned their licenses. Parallel to that is our actual grant and aid funding. And so British Columbia stands head and shoulders above every other jurisdiction. And I keep the records on grant and aid funding by jurisdiction, as well as permit proceeds returned from the sale or auction of these special licenses. And I looked before we went on air just to see, but British Columbia, at least since 1983, when my records go back to, um, we've returned over 6.2 million U.S. to the province from proceeds largely off the uh, wild sheep, minister's wild sheep license for the province of British Columbia. And that's, you know, whatever the conversion rate is from U.S. to Canadian currency, 6.2 million over that 40 year period is, that's a lot of money, you know, in US or Canadian money, that's a lot of money. Well, parallel to that is grant and aid funding. And so far, and I looked and we've had over 180 individual projects that we've helped fund in British Columbia to the tune of about $3.3 million, $3.4 million. And that's exclusive of this year. So just this new cycle that began July 1, there's another 325,000 U.S. that's committed to wild sheep projects in the province. And so one of them is what you just asked about is what we call the Fraser River Test and Remove Project. And this is year six. And this is actually kind of a multi-part grant and aid project focusing on three things. Along the Fraser River, it's designed as an eight-year effort to try and go in and test as many bighorn sheep as possible, budgets and, and sheep allowing, and try and establish what are the prevalence rates of this mycoplasma over pneumonia, what this respiratory 
bacteria, this pathogen that's so challenging. And then in the States, and this work was really pioneered in, in Hell's Canyon between Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, where they were capturing the same individual animal, might have been a ewe, maybe they caught it four or five or six or seven times. About a third of the animals, every time they catch it, it was positive for this MOV bacteria. About a third of the sheep, no matter how many times you caught them, were never positive for MOV bacteria. And then another third were, sometimes they were positive, sometimes they were negative. So somehow they were able to shed that bacteria and get out from underneath that pathogen load. Anyhow, the test and remove, it's a, it's a difficult concept for some to grasp, but what it is is going in and identifying these chronic carrying individuals, and it's primarily use adult use that survive, but they're spreading and shedding this bacteria. And so the Fraser River in British Columbia, this will be year six now, but the first five years they've gone in and tested um, herd by herd by herd by herd. The first four years, I believe, were on the west side of the Fraser, and then year five went to the east side and year six. So it's kind of a U-shaped uh, study design looking at eight different populations, trying to go in and clean up these uh, subpopulations. There's a great film that the Wild Sheep Society of BC put together and we helped sponsor. It's called Transmission that really tells the story. And I'd encourage any of your listeners who haven't watched the full 53-minute runtime transmission, please do so. You'll get a great education about why is this such a challenging issue? But again, this is year six of a planned eight-year study. Well, from the get-go, we were impressed enough with what the managers and the wildlife veterinarians and the conservation groups, Wild Sheep Society has done that we said, yeah, we want to fund this every year if we can. And so we're in year six of our funding, and it's a really good um, on-the-ground intensive management effort. And so the other two components this year is there's some actual some habitat enhancement work on some grasslands over in the Bull River in a different part of the province. And then there's a uh, planned disease workshop, I believe next February and maybe in Penticton. And so Correct. that would yep. be a great um, information source if people want to learn more. And I'm sure the Wild Sheep Society of BC has stuff on on your website that explains all that. But anyhow, so the Fraser Project, it's multi-year, but based on performance and results and application, potential application elsewhere, we felt like this is a good investment to see where this leads. What I will say is British Columbia is, I don't want to use the term aggressive, but you know, in the States, some jurisdictions use a two strikes in your out rule or a three strikes in your out rule. Well, British Columbia said, we may not get our hands on the same animal multiple times. So we're kind of going with a one strike and they're out policy. Now, what that necessitates is good diagnostics. So if you get an animal in hand and you run a, a, an analysis on its sample and it comes up positive for MOV, well, the decision is made to call that animal, euthanize that animal. Certainly don't turn it loose back up on the mountain. And, you know, if you have false positives, 
are, is there a chance that a false positive animal was killed or called? Certainly, that's a possibility. The alternative is if you have a false negative and you've got an animal that's actually positive and your, your, your results don't say that it is, you turn that loose back on the mountain and that continues to be a shedder. So British Columbia collectively has done a um, really good job. It's a tough, tough decision. Believe me, I've had to do it, you know, to put down a big horn sheep in hand. It's not fun. It's not fun for a manager or a wildlife vet. It's a tough decision that has to be made, but it's for the good of the population. I think that's one of the greatest transmission film messages. We're doing this for the population. We're not doing this for individual animals. And while that may sound harsh, I think it's it's necessary. And because of the work that started in Hell's Canyon and it's been continued in the Fraser River, right now, test and remove strategy is being utilized in at least nine states, one province, in at least 27 different wild sheep herds. I think some desert, some California bighorn, mostly Rockies. So far, nothing in stone sheep or doll sheep range. But there's a two-page fact sheet that the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Wild Sheep Initiative put together that was unanimously adopted by all the Western Game and Fish Agency directors in mid-July in Santa Fe. And it explains the logic and the approach behind test and remove. So Fraser River is a great example of a very complicated management challenge that, you know, the alternative is to sit by and, and just watch and do nothing. I think as Chris Proctor said in the film, you can't just sit there and do nothing. Yeah, for sure. And the test and remove process, that's a relatively new or young process. Hey, it's fairly, uh, but it's kind of the go-to now, like, uh, and they're never, you know, so to, 10 years ago, there was, we just did nothing, right? We just, you know, we accepted our fate, but now we actually have a tool that we can apply. Um, talk a little bit about the history of it, I guess, Kevin, and, and where we sit uh, with it today and, and if you see this growing in the future. You know, I think if you look back through time, you know, scientific advances are never uh, linear. There's always hiccups and speed bumps. And so, you know, 10 years ago, like you said, people sat and wrung their hands and went, oh, crap. Well, that herd just died off. So wild sheep conservationists, dust yourself off. Let's go raise some more money. Agencies, ministries, let's put some more sheep in there and try again. Well, I think it was Einstein or whoever said, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome is insanity. So this is, it's um, still a concept, like a lot of, um, scientific advances. It needs replicates. It needs demonstrated results, share those results, have people repeat that experiment. And that's why so many 27 herds in at least 10 jurisdictions. And what's really been gratifying is about every 18 to 24 months, we get together, <coughs> excuse me, and we'll have a day long or a two day workshop. That's just information sharing. Okay. Texas is now having respiratory die-offs in desert sheep along the Mexico border. They never had that before. 
And they used to look at all the other states and provinces and go, whew, man, glad we don't have that in Texas. Well, guess what? Texas is dealing with it now. But what all the agencies and the universities and the researchers are doing and the NGO conservation groups like our chapters and our affiliates are sharing that information. So whatever Texas did, maybe they learn Oregon did something different. British Columbia did something. North Dakota tried this. Colorado or Wyoming tried something. And so we're trying to advance our knowledge, collective knowledge, and it's always in fits and starts. It's never smooth, you know, easy, easy path forward. But uh, there's a lot of people that are really excited about this because it is a hands-on proactive tool instead of just sitting there going, huh, dang, we lost another herd. What do we do about it? So no silver bullet necessarily, but it, it does hold promise, but it needs a lot of uh, ground truthing and field testing. Yeah, right on. Um, well, Kevin, I've taken a bunch of your time here today. Uh, before we sign off, what's the plan for you this fall? What, what are you doing for, have you done any hunts? You got any hunts on the, on the go? What are you doing? Well, we're sitting here today is the 19th of September. So in about 12 days, I'm going to be flying to Whitehorse and then taking a float plane into somewhere in the Telegraph Creek area and going on a moose hunt in Northern BC. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, It'll be drastically different where I live now in southwest Idaho. It's been a hot, dry summer, and I'm breaking out the Sitka gear and, and the warm clothes and the muck boots, and I'm headed north on a moose hunt. So that's my uh, big deal. I've waited a long time. I've never had the chance to go hunt one of those northern moose, but I am so excited to be going in about 12 days, and hopefully I'll be gone for 12 days. Awesome. Do you have any idea on, uh, are you holding out for a certain size or are you just, you're going to shoot the first four corn that runs over there? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but no, you have, no. do you have a goal? I, I don't, I just want to have a, a good experience. And you know, every time I've been able to go on a outfitted hunt up North, uh, it's been a good experience. Sometimes I come home empty handed, but I've always got a, head full and a camera full of photos and memories. And that's what I'm going for is the experience. And, you know, if I get something, that's just a bonus. Wonderful. Well, awesome. Kevin, I want to thank you for your time today and thank you. I always enjoy having you on as a podcast host. It doesn't get any easier when we host you because you could talk with the best of them. So, um, and, but all joking aside, what you do for conservation, your leadership and the foundation, I've got the pleasure of, as a director working with you and, and having that leadership. And we're just super grateful for everything you do, Kevin. And, um, anytime we get you up here in BC, it makes us happy because, uh, you're such a, such a great steward for the resource and such a great steward for wild sheep. And we just thank you for all you do. And, and certainly the wild sheep foundation, uh, just great partners of the wild sheep society, BC and, and everything you do for wild sheep across the landscape in all the jurisdictions. I love it. Thank you. Right back at you. You know, BC has got as active of a chapter or affiliate as anywhere. And there's, so many folks that support the cause and so much need, you know, and so I guess I'd encourage any of your BC listeners or, or beyond is invest, spend some of your hard earned money helping wild sheep in the province, you know, things like the Jurassic classic, that's a whole separate podcast, but you know, there's, there's good fundraisers and there's definitely good projects and a great need for wild sheep 
management and proactive work in in the province. So thank you for what you guys do. Well said. And uh, we'll see you in uh, just a couple of weeks here down in, well, 10 days down in Bozeman. So looking forward to it, Kevin. Yep. And then as soon as that's done, I'm headed north. <laughs>